Welcome everybody to Chat with the Designers, your weekly online live interactive ham radio magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, and and ops on a worldwide basis across the fruited plains. Uh, this is George, your host N2APB, and uh, our other co-host Joe N2CX is not with us this evening. He is a new grandfather, actually a second-time grandfather. And uh, he is tending to family matters um, this weekend and extending on into uh, today. So Joe is going to be catching up with us online, or I mean, uh, uh, in a podcast uh, afterwards. And uh, he and I chatted about the session here, constructed the things, the discussion for tonight. And we have a really exciting show planned here for uh, for everybody. And it's uh, kind of unique. Every week we, uh, as, as most of you probably know, what we do is we construct a, a focused session on one topic or another, a technical topic, an operating topic, a project topic. And uh, what we do is we drill down on it. Well, given that we've gone through a half year, uh, oh, more than th- more than a half year, we've had 30 sessions, 30 episodes under our belt. And we thought it would be a really good time coming back from vacation here and kind of relaxing and get a chance to go back and touch base with most of the different uh, sessions, most of the different topics and projects that we've been uh, uh, covering over the weeks. And this will give you a chance, you who are here live with us, to maybe ask questions again about a project that might be a a favorite of yours or something that you've been pondering a little bit. It'll give you a chance to catch up with maybe a session that you missed in the past and maybe didn't, or even if you did get a chance to listen to the podcast, get a chance to do uh, to listen live here to some of the explanations and ask questions and especially if you're a podcast lis- listener uh, you'll have a chance to uh, uh, kind of catch up and get a good overview of things in a relatively short amount of time had a tremendous amount of uh, feedback on a, growing on a regular basis with people listening on the podcasts and sending in questions and saying uh, you know way to go and keep up the good work because they are not able to attend because of timing or family commitments or whatever, but they regularly uh, put the, the MP3 or the podcast on their on their player as they're going to and from work or working out in the yard or whatever. So we're really pleased to have everybody with us, not just the 30 or so that show up each week here with us live, but uh, for the numbers that are growing of uh, podcast listeners. So this is going to be a good chance to kind of overview things, and we're going to dive right in because we have a lot of topics a lot of topics to review, and what we thought that we'd do is um, not replicate every single week. That would be kind of boring, and, and gosh, we've had so much good inf- information each every week that it's uh, it would be difficult to squeeze it all, you know, all 30 weeks into, into 60 minutes or so. So what I did is I, constru- I pulled relevant slides and um, kind of slides and graphs and charts and photos and put them onto our whiteboard. And again, hopefully everybody is uh, able to dial into the, in the whiteboard to give a good representative overview of each session. And uh, we can address those highlights. What I have particular interest in doing here, in addition to doing the reviews, overviews of the, of the projects and such, like we said, is to hear back uh, from hopefully each of you relative to your particular progress and interest and what projects you are working on, or maybe what principles you've kind of picked up on and uh, have implemented. 
for example, when we get to the talk about uh, um, schematic capture and PCB layout. Have you done one yet? We gave you a whole bunch of different tools that, uh, that Joe and I use, and uh, we showed you some results and actually have a project based on using those tools. But I'm wondering if you've used the tools. So at every, uh, at every juncture between, uh, between uh, topics, I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll stop and ask for questions and maybe drill down a little bit. And I'd really, really appreciate, and more importantly, everybody would appreciate getting your input, your, your um, experiences kind of aired, because that's what makes this show interesting. It's not just Joe and me talking, you know, week after week. It's actually the information that you all bring to the show as well and help guide us and, and the direction that we're uh, kind of taking the technology discussion. So before we get into this any um, in full force here, I kind of open it up for any questions, uh, comments, general nature? Um, um, are you finding these things useful for uh, you know entertainment and education and, and kind of uh, ham radio type of fulfillment along the way here? Does anybody have any comments along those lines? Uh, that's Jim Call, uh, George, and I find uh, uh, your website here has been extremely helpful for me. Uh, I've looked uh, all over every place for a Z-Match uh, schematic and found it right here on yours and and also a wonderful article on the uh, uh, half wave NFED antenna okay thanks a lot for the feedback there really glad to have have it serve a good purpose uh, for you there okay now in the beginning there was uh we were kind of getting our feet on the ground we didn't really have a, a good uh, technique and as you look back in some of the very earliest uh, podcasts and show episodes for example back in november 22 i'm at the top of our whiteboard now we talked about RF power measurements for QRPers. Curiously, that was one of the most popular ones. Uh, the feedback that we got for that was just really outstanding. However, unfortunately, I didn't know or have the techniques down for recording the session, so we have no podcast for that one. There's no photos, just a collection of links and some dialogue that we had during the show. So it's Joe's and my intention to go back and do that one again, but we're going to do it well and, and in spades. And we're going to have the, the typical types of pictures and, and overview and, and topics and, and so on. But as you can see from the whiteboard uh, material there, we, we really did a good cross-section of the various power meters and techniques for us QRPers to be measuring very low power on the benches. There's some good equipment out there, such as, and, and we talked about it in subsequent sessions too, uh, the uh, W7ZOI power meter, the uh, his son, KA7EXM, Roger, uh, has a power meter that we used in a different episode. And the links that are shown there kind of point you over to it. To it. The, there's the venerable, the venerable OHR power meter. And ultimately, there's a, a, there's a couple of links as far as NorCal QRP. Now, sometimes these projects and past, uh, past uh, kits and products are no longer in existence. However, if you do a search, and I would urge you to do that, there's plethora of good information about how you can actually homebrew uh, your own or mix up your own uh, adaptation and get it working on the bench. And, and that is an underlying theme of this particular uh, Chat with the Designers radio show, if you will, is that uh, we like to build and we like to guide you along the lines of, of being able to build your equipment and point you in the right directions for it. Speaking of which, uh, Mr. Uh, Rich, K7SZ, the uh, illustrious and very well-known in QRP oh, and radio it. circles, uh, and author of Low Power Communications, edition number four, recent book out. Congratulations, Rich, and glad to have you with us here tonight. Oh, stop it. 
for crying out loud. I put on my pants one leg at a time, you know, you guys do. Are you guys hearing me okay? Yeah, your microphone can use a little tuning up later on, but we can hear you just fine, Rich. Yeah, thanks, George. One of the things I was going to ask, or one of the things I was going to comment on about uh, RF power measurements at uh, Ozocron this year out in Branson, Missouri, Four States QRP brought out a brand new uh, power meter SWR bridge that is uh, uses a PIC controller and everything, and it's price is around $50, if I recall correctly. I've got one, haven't put it together yet, but that's... Uh, one thing you might want to consider also, we get some information and post it up here. Go ahead. Absolutely great. And if you would, so thanks a lot again for joining us. We're going to move along here. And I also note that Alan, W2AEW, notes in the text uh, messaging that he's currently building a K5BCQ and, uh, and the John Fisher K5JHF uh, power meter for a friend. And we actually have that one pictured later on in the, on the whiteboard here you'll see that that's a very good one I, I also have one and I'm building it up so that's that's uh, good stuff and again I see others are, are posting information okay moving on to November 29th we hit a, ro we hit a, a technology ro round robin and again Joe and I were just getting our feet uh, starting to get our feet on the ground and we you know we wanted to get the best of this and the best of that and talk about technology and we later on found our groove as far as focusing on a specific technology and then drilling down in kind of an educational manner with a project example. But the November 29th was a technology around Robin, and we really hit um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of technology that we deal with on a regular basis, such as PIC technology. Um, I have a lot of HC908 from Motorola-based projects, the SH32, the shark devices, uh, propeller microcontrollers, uh, pickaxe, um, the uh, Arduino, which has been growing and growing and growing. I'll tell you, if there's any project you guys really want to ever think about getting into, if you, you've always been wanting to get into microcontrollers and get your hands around something that's going to stay with you for a while, uh, that's going to stay with the ham radio hobby for a while, learn the Arduino. It's easy. It's, uh, it's as simple as like a 24-pin dip or actually a 28 or maybe a 30 pin dip package in the form of the uh i think it's the nano um a little a tad expensive it's like 30 bucks but i'll tell you with that 30 bucks you get a lot of io you get a lot of a lot of memory you get a lot of c-like processing and c programs are easy to understand especially if you start with an example and start modifying it for what you want to do and i think you'll find that uh, it's an easy thing to pick up and again if there's any one processor out there that I could recommend that you would want to get your hands around as a starting point that's going to be with you for a while and you'll be able to take advantage of, it would be the Arduino. And there is a boatload of really good um, applications already built. In fact, you don't even have to learn how to program it because there are so many programs out there. You just download it, wire up your circuit that we're all pretty good at, and then... Uh, You've got it. Everything from temperature sensing to rig remote control to antenna tuning and things of that nature. I think you'll be really impressed. So we talked about the Arduino there. The tune to tin is a is kind of a new is is, is an, uh, a newer implementation of an old technology, resurrected tune to tin that um, both the NJQRP, the AMQRP, and then NorCal had uh, brought about in many years uh, for many years. Um, and now uh, Rex, W1 something something from QRP Maine, is, uh, is, is got the whole tuna tin line. We had a good time on that uh, on November 29, Technology Robin, Round Robin, and that will be another one 
that Joe and I want to redo at some point just to get a, a good podcast recording of it and get some good material that we want to post there on the website. Um, I don't know if anybody's been a, has been with us since the technology around Robin, but from a technology perspective, other things like the Arduino, maybe that you found in your own experimentation that you found particular delight or utility in, uh, in doing it. I'm wondering if you could uh, add, uh, but the December 6th episode is about best kits. I'm not going to go through that entire dialogue of uh, material that we have there, but as you know, we capture all of the email comments that, uh, you know, that you see on the TeamSpeak client right now. And there's a lot of good information about people contributing their, their, their favorite kits, whether it's a small wonder lab or again, Arduino kits or Lada, Lady Ada. You look in there and that's a, kind of a focus and um, for some of the newer technology that you'll see these days. And there's a lot of that make, um, make magazine based projects on, on it. So all you have to do is a little bit of searching. You'll see a lot of good stuff that can probably uh, help you out in your projects. And similarly, and I don't know, frankly, I didn't, I don't know if I have the, uh, the podcast. This might be the last one for which we didn't have a podcast. December 13, favorite parts and kits suppliers. Once again, we're not going to go down the whole list, but as with every episode that we're talking about here tonight, I gave you a little sampling of what each page was. The yellow highlighted um, text at, in, on the whiteboard here that says like December 13, that's an active hot link. That'll take you back to the original uh, whiteboard for that, that session. And except for the beginning um, episodes, most of those episodes, most of those whiteboard uh, uh, listings that are linked to the original ones have a lot more information. And then Joe and I also developed kind of a uh, um, an extensive and robust reference section at the bottom of each of the whiteboards in the, uh, in the later episodes actually right about uh, mid, midway and onward, um, we, we take, and Joe especially, takes particular pride in really providing a good bibliography of relevant material to the topic of discussion for that night. And uh, again, for the purpose of providing you, the listeners, the podcast listeners, the experimenters that kind of go back to this material later on, you have a chance to kind of use the bibliography material to find exactly what you're looking for. Sure, you can go and Google it yourself and go from link to link and actually find the particular pages of interest. But what we did is for you, um, and, and frankly, as I said, for uh, for Joe and me, we're doing this a lot for ourselves too. This is what we like to do. And this is documentation and reference listing that we find useful. That we can use this, as we hope everybody else will, to go back and dig more into SWR measurements and dig more into coaxial transmission lines. These are topics that we'll get into a little bit later. But our reference sections are something that we take particular pride in. And uh, we hope that you recognize it for what it is, too, and, and use it. So, like the listings of uh, all, all of the discussion topics uh, for the favorite kits and, and kit suppliers, there, there's, there's a boatload there. I mean, it's everything from KD1JV to uh, Goldmine to All Electronics to Mauser to um, QRPRadio.com to um, NorCal, the Parts Place. Um, oh, man, there's some that I cannot even pronounce. Harbor Freight. Oh, man, Harbor Freight. I love Harbor Freight. I'll tell you, 
just as an aside, and this is part of the purpose of, of this kind of a discussion, is I picked, I needed to, uh, well, back up just a second. I'm, I'm in the process of uh, producing a, an RF power amp um, in the range of uh, 20 watts, and it's called the uh, the Power Cube, and uh, it has an, an, um, a heat sink on the back of it, and I use the Penny Whistle amplifier, and the Penny Whistle heat sink is just a tad too wide for the four inch by four inch uh, by about four inch cube. And what I did, I needed to find a way to cut down, take a slice of uh, one inch, I'm sorry, a one eighth inch slice off of each end of the heat sink. And I'll tell you, I made more messes with, uh, with a hand uh, a hacksaw and I got one of those uh, handheld uh, four inch rotary uh, cut all type of things and that never did not do the job and I think I just about severed my uh, my left arm until I found a chop saw from um, let's see I got it at, I think I, I was debating between Home Depot and and I ultimately went to oh I got it at Home Depot actually and uh, it's a 10 inch chop saw and it's like a hundred bucks or maybe hundred and ten dollars one of the best along with some of the other things that we've mentioned in the past, one of the best items that I've really found uh, to be useful in my mechanical portion of my uh, shop. Anyways, I was able to cut with the right blade, I was able to cut a nice straight one eighth inch slice off of each end of the uh, heat sink and it works like wonders. So if you're interested in and have a need for that kind of a tool, definitely look into that one. And then uh, December 20th, we got into best QRP references. Again, in the early days, recall that, you know, we were kind of searching for a rhythm and uh, best of this and most popular of that and, and so on. And it's useful, um, but it was more of a general overview and type of discussion. And, and everybody, and there were a boatload of uh, people who did comment uh, uh, during this, and I'm not sure, I think this is when we did start the, uh, the podcasts. So we had a lot of discussion about books and reference material and websites and CDs and organizations like Tapper and uh, books for DSP processing by uh, Oppenheim and Schaefer, uh, the the gem, the oldie but goodie gem from MIT, which is now available in PDF form freely off the net if you haven't discovered that. Kind of heavy duty. We have other references that we can give you for uh, DS, learning DSP processing, especially on the microchip disk picks. Uh, which tend to be very popular in some of our embedded projects today. Of course, the SDR Cube, the SDR to go. Um, gosh, there's another one that another major one that uses the DSPIC, DSPIC from Microchip. So, um, oh, there it is. Um, Practical digital signal processing for engineers and technicians. It's available on Amazon.com and is just outstanding. So this is the one that is really specifically geared for the DSPIC. So if you get yourself one of those uh, little eval boards from Microchip, uh, probably like $49.99, a little 2-inch by 5-inch board, it has a disc pick on it. Or you could use your SDR Cube DSP board or your SDR to go board because they each have the disc picks that this software will run on. And you can experiment with the principles that are outlined in that book. Great material. And I would urge you to kind of just peruse these, uh, these links specifically and uh, kind of drill down and find uh, find where your own sweet spot is. Um, 
if anybody hasn't really looked into it, or let's do it this way. Are there any other, if you've glanced down the, the, the whiteboard there, have you seen a particular reference, have you not seen your favorite uh, particular reference material? Is there something there that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, it's Alan. Uh, I was looking through the list. I didn't know if you had on there was um, a solid state design for the radio amateur by Wes, Wes uh, Hayward. I'm still looking for a copy of that book. <laughs> it's out of print now, but uh, it's kind of hard to find. But that's uh, full, chock full of great stuff. Oh, absolutely. It is one of the, uh, the gem and absolute... Uh, Wonderful references for QRPers. I've, I'm fortunate enough to have one of the original editions, and then there was a second edition for it as well. And I think you can, uh, if you put a search out on the web, and there's something called Abe Books, A-B-E, abebooks.com, and you can specify what you want, and they'll look for it probably until your dying day. I looked. I was looking for a fourth edition of the Radiotron RCA. RCA or Radiotron tube reference book, and this huge book, and reference um, revision four, or the fourth edition, is uh, a gold mine and is the acknowledged best ever. So I put a, a request into Abe Books, and they ultimately found one for me. And for the next two years, they were sending me indications that, hey, we found another one. Here's another one. You might want to find it. So that or eBay uh, might be something good to uh, to look into, Alan. Um. December 27th, here's where it really starts picking up. Joe and I really picked uh, or found our stride December 27th when we entered into the uh, what we call the homebrew filter design and measurement techniques. Um, it turned out to be a three-part series and uh, um, it turned out to be a good three-part series that we, uh, we handled first uh, how to select a filter and the next week was um, building a sample filter. And the third week was measuring a sample, uh, measuring that filter that we built. And so we built, Joe and I each, and then I think one or two of us here in this group actually uh, uh, built up the circuits as well. But using the techniques that we overviewed in this particular set of uh, three sessions, and it's it's really quite seminal. Um, seminal is, is a means that it's a, it's a good content that can be used for various derivative works later on. And that's really the nature of a lot of our material that we post. We like to put general material on there that can be applied in a lot of different ways. And in this here, with the homebrew filter design and measurement technique series, the three-week series that we did, um, focused on something that's important to us hams very much, and that's uh, a, um, the output LPF, the output low-pass filter of any kind of a transmitter that we do build to strip off the harmonics to reduce the spurious content and keep the signal of interest being the only ones that go out the antenna. So um, this being of great interest and present in every single one of the radios that we that we make and use, we figured that okay and on December 27th, the first episode, um, we would uh, kind of lay out the uh, um, the, the general category, the topology, and talk about things, um, what's available to us. And there are five-pole and seven-pole filters, and there are extra capacitors that can be added to provide, to provide notches at specific frequencies beyond the roll-off of the low-pass filter. Um, and then some tools. We, we showed the AADE and references for you to get that free tool 
and it allows you step by step to actually design a filter uh, based on the parameters that you have. Typically we deal with 50 ohms into and out of an LPF. The 50 ohms into an LPF of course is being driven by a 50 ohm um, power transistor stage and the 50 ohm output of an LPF is going to da -da -da, your 50 ohm antenna ideally. Of course nothing is really um, really 50 ohms but nominal is uh, is what we designed to and uh, once you get things close to 50 ohms you should be golden so the the links and the full um, the full material if you click again on that december 27 2011 highlighted link it'll take you back to that episode with lots more information and uh, it will allow you to actually design your filter um, bottom line is to first of all to select the filter that you want and kind of experiment with what's different parameters and what kind of ripple that you want or that can tolerate in the passband how fast you want that filter to drop off at the uh, at the knee um, because some filters are different than others we have Chevy Jeff filters we've got Butterworth filters and bottom line is that uh, um, you can pick what you want and then design to it before I get into the second episode of that, um, Alan, do you have a question? Actually, I just got to make a comment um, about the low-pass filter and its importance. Uh, I did a video a couple weeks ago um, that uh, discussed the ability to view, vis visually see distortion on a sinusoidal carrier on an oscilloscope, and uh, and the fact that. Uh, you really can't quite see distortion at the levels that would fail FCC requirements. I was at 42 dB down for the, the harmonics or something like that. Virtually invisible and impossible to see on scope, but easy to see on a spectrum analyzer. Not a lot of us have access to a spectrum analyzer, so it just uh, kind of drives the point home that it's really important to include this low-pass filter in your design. Oh, you better believe it. Absolutely. Um... If you are lucky enough to have a, low, a, a spectrum analyzer, of course you can see it, and I think we addressed that in a couple of episodes uh, further down the whiteboard. Um, and I would also like to explore with you techniques that we can use either with a scope or a modified scope and circuit to serve that same purpose. And you know, we can talk about that as a potential another scope application, as we, of course, one of our episodes was dedicated to that, uh, hosted by you. So that that's. Uh, that's very good. And um, we also have another project in a little bit too, just to kind of lead the uh, lead the shot here. We've got um, a project called um, Spurious, Com I forgot what I called it, Spurs, Harmonics, and something, oh my. And uh, we have a technique that a, a really low-end homebrew technique that one can use to look at those filter component, those uh, spectra components, either that you, that are certainly blasting through if you don't have an LPF, or certainly uh, still present, but hopefully at least 40 dB down um, in order to meet the uh, FCC regulations. So in episode number two, which is January 3rd, episode two of our series for the homebrew filter design and measurement techniques, we actually get into the project, and I see someone someone mentioned here the uh, um, that Paul mentioned that this was uh, one of his favorite uh, episodes. 
It was mine too, because I don't know if you guys follow along and actually build up some of the stuff that we're talking about here. I really hope you do. And in a moment or at some point here this evening, I'll ask, you know, who's also built the filter and, and whatnot. It's extremely educational. You can sit and, you know, you guys know this. You can sit and read a book until the cows come home. Or you can hear somebody yap about it on a TeamSpeak session like this. But until you actually wire the circuits together, solder those, uh, those components in, and uh, um, look at it on a scope and figure out why it's not supposed to be doing, or why it is not doing what it should be doing, or why is that noise in there? I mean, you, re you really see what reality is versus theory, and you get some good techniques. A good example. Here's a, here's a great example, especially since uh, uh, Rich was instrumental in putting together a project some of you might remember. Now, if you know, if you remember the utility of an 88 millihenry audio coil, uh, toroid, uh, back from the RTTY days, um, these these were plentiful back then. You got to pay it through the nose for them now. But these fat toroids with like a jillion windings on them uh, total up to 88 millihenries, and they were very popular uh, for creating audio filters in radio teletype uh, demodulators. Well, Rich was involved in. And I forgot who was the actual designer, but Rich helped put the uh, the project together. And a CW filter using a handful of uh, 88 millihenry uh, toroids. And I built that up. <clears throat> it's in a cardboard box, true homebrew style. And I connect that thing up to the audio of my, uh, my rig, and CW gets in there to 800 hertz. And I'll tell you, that thing was so smooth and pure. That filter was just, I, I don't know what it was. I don't, I mean, I, from a schematic wise, I can't recall. Um, but bottom line is that those toroids really made for a smooth sounding filter and very narrow and with uh, very little ringing. But the moral, uh, the, the, how this ties into here is that uh, in building it up, I, of course, had to really understand how the, the toroids were connecting together and why I was, you know, cutting this wire and connecting this to that and kind of bastardizing the uh, 88 millihenry coil itself. But, um, and it didn't work at first and it didn't work later on. It didn't work after that until I finally got it right. Moral of the story is you got to build stuff. And when you're building it, you learn a lot more than uh, than just kind of reading books. So the nature of this group here is to be building, building stuff on your bench. Get that soldering iron hot and to try out some of the techniques here. We're giving all your references. We're leading you right to the water. You got to drink though. So, in the uh, coming back to this uh, low pass filter, we built both Joe and I built this low pass filter, and then the episode uh, kind of ended up with a way to we needed a way to measure the filter performance. So you know you squared in you squared in an RF signal. And you can see from the block diagram there RF signal source, device under test, and measure and plot. And this uh, was the spawn. This 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 project uh, or this episode here spawned the need for a very um, low-level, high-accuracy RF uh, detector. We call it we des Joe Joe and I designed this thing, and we call it the Sweeper Input Card, the SIC, and because Sweeper, because we have intentions for it later on that it'll become evident. But um, with this card and a signal source like the Micro 908, as you see pictured there, we can inject a signal into that filter on a little piece of double-clad copper board, uh, double, jeez, um, double-sided copper-clad board, and uh, 
actually see the performance on the output. And I think uh, in the next episode for January 10th, we actually show those measurements and uh, the results of the uh, of the of the whole project. So by squirting um, the micro uh, RF into the that uh, RF, uh, I think you can click on it to. Uh, yeah, if you double click <clears throat> or just click on any of the pictures, it'll give you a larger view. So you can see the low pass filter copper clad board uh, implementation being fed by the output of the micro 908 on the top cable. And then the output of the LPF coming back down to the side, um, a BNC on the side of the micro 908, which of course is uh, where we have positioned the SIC card. So that sensitive card is able to measure at every different frequency the signals that we were injecting. And then of course that's the transfer function for that particular device under test. The curves down that are shown on that page show the idealized or theoretical. I just didn't have enough uh, room or want to take the room. So you can look back um, at the original page at the link there at the highlighted uh, date up at the top to actually see the measurements that were taken. And you can actually see how the reality of signal measurements differ from the idealized plotted measurement values that you have here. But the end, the moral of this story is that they did. And I was very pleased and I personally learned something along the way and, and, and not only for the filter construction, but for the measurement techniques and how to connect up with different signal source and different kinds of detectors and how they all correlated together. And, uh, you know, maybe this is uh, maybe maybe some of you guys found this useful too. And I also put uh, on this page there was a side project that I didn't build up, but it's ideally suited for the SIC is a Q meter, a Q meter fixture. So again, by squirting an RF signal into that uh, T arrangement, uh, the capacitive, the capacitor T, and with a device, um, uh, an inductor under test in parallel with a variable capacitor in the bottom leg of that T, you're able to see um, where that, uh, where the circuit resonates, where the higher RF signal is going to be coming out on the output, and you'll actually be able to uh, determine what the Q factor is for that inductor under test. Again, another use for a uh, very low power detector, such as the, uh, the sweeper input card. All right. Um, questions? Uh, let, let's dwell for a moment here now we're at the, the end of the uh, the three-part series on on uh, filter design and what we did is we presented uh, some different filters different types of filters what they were good for we presented a, uh, a project that you could actually build up and if you haven't done it before please consider doing it now you probably have parts in your junk box or you even have parts probably in one of your uh, your QRP transmitter types of projects that are sitting there on the bench. And every transmitter that I know of has some type of an LPF on it. And what you can do is take a signal source of some kind. Maybe you have a micro 908, maybe you have an HP 8640B, or maybe you have, uh, maybe you have um, one of the nifty uh, SI570. Oh, you can't use that. It's got to be a sinusoidal uh, signal source. For accurate measurements, but uh, the the Austin QRP group makes a really nice uh, SI570 controller and VFO. Get a VFO, squirt it into the filter, and look at the output and see what you get. Okay, Paul, you had uh, questioned uh, the SIC 
and the microwattmeter are both unavailable. Well, the SIC is we're going to get to in a moment, or maybe maybe already past the point. Uh, uh, the uh, the sweeper input card is a project that was born here on chat with the designers, and like I mentioned, I think um, this might have been one of the first projects that I said uh, we're going to share here with the chat with the designer audience at a uh, at an optimum price. Um, at an attractive price, different from what might be charged later on. Um, just for my own time bandwidth standpoint, I haven't had a chance yet to make more PCBs for it, but I still do. In fact, uh, I'm looking here on the tabletop and I've got a little shelf and each one of the Chat with a Designer projects is lined up there. I see the SIC card, the Growler, the Rainbow Tuner, the, um, uh, the Retro SWR, oh golly, um, the SQM, the signal quality meter. So these are all projects that when I do get time and I've been collecting parts for them um, all along. For example, the retro SWR meter is just about ready. Same too with the rainbow tuner. I just have to take the, the final steps to kit it up. But we'll make these things available for you. The printed circuit board and the ICs and a little kit project that you can put together such that you can indeed uh, you know, get a good signal detector to measure the output of a device under test. Lacking that, you could find yourself and maybe you have an RF voltmeter, uh, such as I'm looking at, uh, shucks, Millivac is the manufacturer of mine, Millivac. I got this at a ham fest. Works pretty well. Um, that could be used and you could use some other RF detection techniques. Uh, even if it's uncalibrated, you could use, uh, Put together a small RF probe, a diode, a capacitor, a resistor, and you got yourself an input to a DVM, and you too can actually read RF volts, um, RMS uh, volts, and that would uh, be very uh, helpful to you. And signal sources are a dime a dozen. Well, maybe not a dime, but uh, you got the DDS60 cards, you got different kinds of VFOs, you can whip yourself up a, a coal pits oscillator with a crystal that you might have, happen to have handy although you want to vary your VFO for the device under test. But nonetheless, of course, the, the, the most ideal VFO is a small QRP transmitter. So take a transmitter that, that has variable uh, transmit and uh, use that to feed your, your, uh, your LPF and measure the output with your RF detector. So there's a variety of ways to do it, and uh, I guess I would encourage you to, to give a shot at doing that. It's, it's fun, it's educational, and... Uh, Heck, you can actually use the project when you're all when you're all done. Keep it in simple. That's the whole uh, thing that that that'll work every time. The more complex it gets, the perhaps the more accurate your measurements get. But certainly, it does get more complex on the bench. But uh, you can certainly get to it. Alrighty. Um, next, we got in. We turned the the corner in the new year, and we uh, we got into the best antenna. What's the best antenna? Now, of course, as you all know, there is no best antenna. There's a bunch of popular antennas and antennas, wire antennas specifically in different forms and shapes and such are really um, uh, better for some situations and not. And they're easy to put up. And Joe, N2CX, is uh, kind of like the master of antennas, at least in my mind and that of an awful lot of people here in the QRP field. He knows his antennas. And what we did is we pulled together kind of graphics of how many are there? Um, 16. 16 different kinds of antennas. And we talked about these antennas from 
verticals to NFED to um, square loops to, um, or do we have, there's a half square. Um, there's a sloping vertical. Um, everything is referenced to a dipole. So you name it, there's a, there's a good basic antenna there. And what we did is we, we reviewed the attributes of those antennas, what their strengths were, what their, their downfalls were. I, I happen to, for example, I happen to love using uh, an e, um, uh, double zap, an NFED zap, um, an NFED wire that's really long, like on the order of 188 feet, I think is. Uh, and... Um, now that's that works really great. It's really it's good for field days because uh, I can point it in the direction that I want to. But the downside, of course, is that it's 188 feet long. And uh, but going through these different antennas, you get to see the different kinds of characteristics. And again, on our on our the main whiteboard for that particular um, session, there is more verbiage that really goes through and gives you some ideas. And once you find you know something that might suit your fancy, suit your backyard. You can drill down and do some research with the links that we provided and find out more information about. There's a couple of good books that we listed as references there too. Um, Wire Antennas is a really good book. And um, the simple, inexpensive, and uh, kind of thin. But uh, hopefully uh, hopefully had some good time with some of the antennas there. there. Comment? Is that, is that, yeah, Rich, go ahead. Welcome back here. Right, thank you. I had uh, I'm babysitting uh, Aunt Betty, so we had uh, had a minor situation. Um, <clears throat> sorry for the delay and get back. The uh, there's a very good uh, demonstration of lightning and what it can do to your shack. Paul A4XX of the Night Lights in Raleigh, North Carolina, just sent me pictures a couple of days ago. His antenna shack got hit, and it is quite awesome to say the least. A couple of million watts, and um, it's one of those things where I'd be more than happy to send the uh, photos to uh, to you, George, and have you post them on the site or whatever, or maybe bring them up to uh, to this group next time around, so you can get an idea of what happens when you do get hit, and it's very, very sobering. Jay Bromley, WB5JAY, also has some information that I'll pass along uh, via, via George, if uh, that's okay. Go ahead. Oh, that's perfect. And it's great timing, too, because the next, uh, the next topic that we covered on... Uh January 24th was Grounding 101, and I also gave some references in there, Rich, to some other ham who had uh, documented a lightning strike, or at least a nearby lightning hit, and it is terrible, terrible um, damage to his uh, system, and I think nobody can really avoid um, being totally incapacitated uh, and wiped out by a direct lightning strike there's just nothing that's going to save you from that but even for local um uh local strikes that induce a lot of energy in your wires um, along the electrical feed lines and so on there is a lot that you can do and we outline in this section in this episode for uh, january 24th um a bunch of things that you can really do to strengthen your shack and it's it's, it's just really important i think you know there's a lot of common sense that uh, we have, that we exercise as hams. I mean, you know, you, we know which end of the soldering iron to grab onto usually. You know not to lick the, uh, you know, like you can lick the battery terminals on a 9-volt battery. You know not to do that on a, an AC feed. Things like that. We got that pretty well down. But there's some pretty common things that, that we don't all religiously do. And I'll speak from experience. I 
don't have, or at least at one point, I did not have great grounding in my station. And heck, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't affected. I had no problem. So, eh, okay, I'll make do. Someday you're going to get zapped and you will just uh, wish that you had done some basic precautions that we kind of outlined in, in our, uh, our session on January 24th. We showed some photo examples of grounding techniques, of uh, lightning arresters, um, where to ground, how to ground, how to bring feed lines into the house in a safe manner, and uh, a good way for routing an awful lot of uh, the cables that come in and keeping track of the grounds and make sure you all go back to a ground reference, make sure your rig is grounded. Um, we show the three main uh, grounding areas, that of the station, that of the feed line, and that of the antenna. Ground rods, ground radials, you name it. And also, there's a pretty cool picture that we included um, that was uh, at the base. It looks like it's a base of an antenna. Um, no, sorry. It looks like it's a, um, a station table. So you got your gear on a table, a tuner, ground rod, um, a screen or grid that's under the carpet, and it's all tied together. And uh, coax comes in, the coax ground is tied there, and... Uh, Sometimes we as QRPers need to be really careful about RF floating around the shack. And you can get rid of that by good grounding practices, by following good grounding practices. The problems we get into, for example, is, um, of course, I'm into digital modes quite a bit. And with low power and antennas located close by, there's a chance for having RF floating around in the, in the shack. And it will get into digital equipment and turn your PTT on and won't turn it off and you'll say, what the heck is going on? But putting chokes in the right spot, putting grounding, grounding your equipment, making sure your ground, your ground is continuous through different equipment and all back to a common ground can be very, very helpful. So this episode, this episode for Grounding 101 has some great references, some good pictures, good pictures. that uh, that Rich is going to add to. Somebody have a comment there? Yeah, Rich. Sure. Okay, one, uh, a couple of things. Number one, when I give you these pictures and you post them, uh, you'll see that the least amount of worry is about your your actual gear. When you see Paul's shack, uh, the actual antenna shack, you'll see that his main objective was to keep the fire under control that happened. I mean, it's it's, it's horrible. So if you get a direct lightning strike, there's virtually nothing you can really do about it. I know I've heard all sorts of ideas. Been in the Air Force in the Air Force Com for 20 years. We lost a couple of microwave tires over in Germany back in the 80s. Uh, went to mad lengths to condition them to uh, withstand lightning. Went to you know multi hundreds of thousands of dollars on each station, yada yada, and we still had problems. Um, the bottom line is keep the, uh, the the static or the, or the discharge out of the shack because it can travel through. The coax, obviously, it can travel on a, on a ground system that isn't well installed. It can travel on <clears throat> leads that are connected to your radio, like your, your keyer and your audio leads or your push-to-talk switch, etc. So it's not, it's not a very easy thing to do. And, and we as QRPers tend to think that, like you said, George, it's, you know, it's not really a big problem for us, but it is, uh, especially incoming. As far as the RF uh, feedback into the shack, that's... Um, I've had some problems over the years, and you're absolutely correct. We need to sit there and uh, sometimes go to great lengths with uh, RF chokes, clamp-on uh, RF beads, uh, ground returns, and stuff like that to, uh, to keep things under control and keep the stuff, especially with computers, keep the stuff out of the computer. Uh, things have progressed 
to a point where they're not as bad as they used to be, you know, five, ten years ago. But still, we end up having difficulties. That's all I've got. Thanks. Yeah, and after uh, after you get struck, and uh, you get those those clamp on uh, those clamp on filters, and they get kind of zapped, you end up with toxic clamp on uh, syndrome type of uh, material at the end. You got to get rid of all that, and you got to be careful about that. Rich, you have uh, you had uh, you stepped out for a moment when I had mentioned your 88 millihenry um, CW filter and the use the use of those 88 millihenry toroids and uh, I find I still find particular joy in, in using that, but it was real fun building too. Well, the guy who does that, or who who initiated that many, many moons ago, was Ed Weatherholt, W3NQN. I actually met him. I think it was in 2006 or 2005, and uh, he's 70 some years old at that time and still played tennis every day. Excellent physical health. One heck of a nice guy, and I'm not sure he's still alive. I hope he is. But uh, you can probably contact him via QRZ.com, get his email, and, and talk to him. Uh, but he still has some of those kits available, and they're not the old kits like he used to have. They're a different system. I think you have one of the newer ones uh, there, George. And they do work. Uh, they're great for boat anchor rigs, especially when you have all these. <laughs> you really don't want to go inside and modify anything because it destroys the, the uniqueness of the boat anchor. But uh, it's nice as an outboard uh, CW filter, and they do work very, very well. Go ahead. Indeed, they do. That's good. Okay, I'm going to start uh, accelerating a little bit, and I might uh, skip uh, one or two sessions. I want to touch on a couple of them that are kind of uh, that are kind of good. I particularly like February 14, the schematic capture and PCB layout. We introduced the design of the SIC, the sweeper input card, that RF detector, um, with this episode by means of an example, and this is exactly how um, we we uh, follow the project. Uh, the project, uh, the genesis of it, as it were. Joe and I meet roughly every week or two uh, for a Saturday morning breakfast halfway between our QTHs. And right there, shown on the page, is a white, is a uh, napkin. True engineering fashion is what we whipped up uh, that schematic one breakfast over uh, uh, cake and eggs. And uh, what we did is uh, used a schematic technique that Joe and I follow. What I called, uh, I call it micro adjustment techniques. It's not patented, maybe trademarked by me, but nonetheless, it's using PowerPoint for um, drawing very precise uh, schematics and full flexibility of a drawing package. And you can download the, uh, the PowerPoint version as well as a perfect PDF. It, it doesn't represent too well on the on the screen here, um, but it, it really is nice and. Um, 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of my schematics are done this way. And I have a lot of schematics, just like Ivory has soap. So, um, but you can also use, of course, a drawing, a, an actual schematic capture package. And on, on this, uh, on the actual whiteboard for this session um, of um, February 14th, Valentine's Day, we, we list a whole bunch of different ones from Eagle to PCB CAD to um express pcb and pcb express and whatever they might be i happen to use um circad i've used it from day one uh, with uh really good results and have updated to the latest uh, one that gives a really good results and it has an integrated schematic package and a beauty of these things is once you use most of these packages to lay out a schematic 
and this simple schematic like what I have drawn there with the log amp, the A to D converter, and then a, uh, a three terminal regulator and associated components, you press one button and boom, you got the circuit laid out. It auto routes, it automatically lays out the circuit. Now you can give it parameters and guidelines and starting points and go back and correct it to make it exactly to be the size and kind of like design rules that you want to follow. But nonetheless, it's it's an easy thing to do. And this just chronicles, and again, if you double click on that picture, the photo of the SIC, you see the end result. And by the way, the copper rectangle or square around the log amp <clears throat> is where a uh, a tin, a little tin box gets soldered above it to further isolate and uh, provide an ability to reach down deep and measure the low signals. But the, that hasn't been soldered onto the board at, at when this photo was taken. So by the way, again, this board here is going to be available. And uh, you can connect it up to your Micro 908 you know, signal source and have your Micro 908 read the signals coming off of that uh, the pin header on the backside. You could... Uh, you could drive it with some other signal generator and have the output being read by any other microcontroller you want. You can interface it to your PC, bring in the low-level data, and have it plotted on your screen. All these things are quite, not only quite possible, but there, uh, um, many of the solutions already are in hand. But this is a good example of how some of the projects we're working on here in chat with the designers is able to surface, and you can play along if you want. Uh, circuit simulation of February 21. Well, it was kind of fun using uh, Spice. Again, free tools, and you can model your circuits and look what you can look at what the signal response is going to be from your circuits, and a lot of good references for there. April 24th was when we talked about the Growler. Now, the Growler, of course, is a um, a pickaxe controller that presents that that reads SWR, and then uh, it displays or enunciates the SWR and Morse code, and it delivers a tone based on how high or low your SWR is. And you can actually, I think there's a link on here to the YouTube. Um, yeah, there's a YouTube demo that I put on the on, on YouTube, and you can actually see that in operation. Now this too is just a matter of getting the circuit board and the components together, and uh, I will. In fact, that's probably like my New Year's my new mid-year's resolution is to get some of these projects off the table so you guys can kind of play with them if you want. And um, I have in mind that we're going to create on the CW, on the chat with the designers uh, um, forum, a page, in essence, that lists all of the, that pictures, each one of these projects that we have done here in the group, such that it kind of brings them all together. You can actually see them and get a chance to kind of a handy collected reference for all of the projects that we're dealing with here. So if you're following along on a semi-regular basis, you can be sure to come to that particular uh, web page or Yahoo group, and you can have a good uh, collection of all the projects that we're working on here. Um, March 6th, we talked about the Rainbow Tuner. The Rainbow Tuner is a venerable That's project. my birthday. February 14th? March 6th. Why didn't you send me one? <laughs> well, if, if ever there was a reason to do that, Rich, that would be one. The uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Rainbow Tuner, um, oh gosh, we had that. That was one of our very, very earliest projects. This was a, an N2CX design, and we enhanced it downstream to look just like what you see there. And it uh, presents 
SWR in the form of four LEDs being uh, uh, illuminated. And um, it's, it's some really good principles that are based in the design. A simple design with a lot of uh, good principles in there with also a, um, a pretty effective, simple, keep it simple, type of uh, antenna tuner using a coil and a, um, a polyvericon uh, uh, tuning capacitor. Makes it inexpensive and, and easy for those end-fed half-wave um, types of long wires that we have. We had a very popular um, session concerning digital communications on March 13. Now, if you missed it, I would really urge you to go to that page. Again, the link is at the highlighted date of March 13th, or you can see it in the list of all of the different uh, uh, archives of our whiteboards and uh, podcasts for digital communications. The cool part that people fed back about was that uh, I was able to <clears throat> and take the uh, take the the mode and show it on a on a display that you see there. For example, PSK31, you see what you would recognize if you're into digital, you would recognize that as the, the, the familiar PSK31 railroad track of waterfall. And uh, but what I did on this too is that I uh, I provided the link. Now will it work here or not? Uh, I provided the link with actual recording of the digital. Here it is. Now, wasn't that exciting? But it probably would be exciting if uh, you're into digital modes and and you get a chance to listen to what the different kinds of digital signals uh, are. I have a slide. It's just a subset of the slides. There's a boatload of others. And I think you can uh, really follow along well if you look at the original material on the, on the whiteboard. But you have PSK31, PSK63, MFSK, Contestia, Jam. Then you can go to Hell. Uh, you got Clover, uh, Navtex, uh, Pactor, HamDRM, you name it. There's a lot of digital modes out there, and there's examples of many of them in the uh, slide presentation or the uh, material on the web page there. Plus, and more importantly, what I did is I outlined the uh, a way to get going with digital station, getting set up for a digital station. Because at the end of the day, or at the beginning of a at the beginning of a digital day, there's really nothing too special about digital mode in the way that we use it on the hand bands. It's audio modulation. Usually it's audio modulation. So if you can modulate audio into an SSB transmitter, and then you can take the output of the you know receiver and put it into a demodulator that, that's able to pull apart and understand the audio tones and uh, frequencies coming out with the right algorithm, you can actually decode right there to your PC screen. Or, da, da 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 we don't need no stinking PC if you're using the new, the NUE PSK digital modem pictured on the last slide there. Um, and that's uh, something that many guys find very helpful to take digital on the field, be able to work out on a low power without having a PC, uh, cumbersome PC, hard to read PC, power consumptive power uh, PC. Just take your FT817, your, uh, your new PSK modem box there, a little appliance and then a small keyboard and you're in like Flynn. And the software in there, by the way, just as a, as a sidebar now is is uh, got additional modes and capabilities um, such as RTTY uh, quadrature 
BPSK, and also CW Reader, CW and Keyer Mode. So there's a lot of uh, different ways you can enjoy PSK, even or digital modes, even with uh, with that little portable box. I got a comment. Sure, go ahead. Okay, sorry to monopolize, but I got to tell you, having played Riddy with the Air Force, RTTY with the Air Force, that was one of the last modes I really wanted to undertake. I mean, 20 years worth of that stuff, and you get a you get a feel for the obvious that it, you know, although the smell of hot gear oil and a clankety clank of either a Kleinschmidt or a KSR 28 is really cool. Uh, it only goes so far, and when I had that little NUE uh, box, that was so cool. I, I really got a kick out of taking my FT817 and that NUE box, firing it up on RTTY, and actually making good contacts with 5 watts and, uh, of course, PSK31. But the RTTY was really a lot of fun, George, and that, i got to tell you, thank you so much for putting that together. you done good, son. Well, thanks a lot, Rich. Glad uh Glad you've uh, you've enjoyed that, and it is a lot of fun. I'll tell you, and I don't know about the rest of you guys here and what your preferences are from a uh, uh, old ham radio standpoint or new stuff, but I'm, I'm kind of uh, what they call bimodal. I really, really enjoy the boat anchors, and I'm sitting here looking at my R390, not the A, but the original 390, which is a much better type of uh, arrangement. I have a Viking 2000 uh, transmitter, um, Invader. Um, I have a gorgeous, gorgeous um, replication. Or it's not a replication, but it's my original ham radio, my novice station. Thanks to my You're very welcome. good friend. Such <laughs> my very good friend. So it's an HP and, uh, oh gosh, the rich of the numbers, HR10, HB10. Uh, the VFO is an HD10. And, of course, the, da, 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 the DX60B. So very much working at getting that working. Turning around, I just have to mention these because I really enjoy them. And some of you will recognize them. I'm looking over at a brand-new, out-of-the-box NC183D, a national 183D that has had less than less than three hours operating time. Brand You've been holding out on me. <laughs> yeah. And I've got an old one. I'm, I'm uh, an old HR60, and um, I've got an Art um, Art 13 back from the from the, the B52 day. The, the the B oh shucks, which one was B17, those? B17, B24, C47. There you go. The World War II days, and uh, and I'm making an H uh, an HBR16 homebrew receiver 16. From Ted Crosby back in the 1960s. So couple all of that with, of course, the DSP work that you know that I'm that I'm working in the SDR cube, and uh, I'm into the uh, HP SDR and you name it. So fun stuff. I can't get enough of this hobby, and I hope you all guys you you all enjoy it just as much as uh, Joe and I do and, and Rich. Coming down to April 3rd, if you dial up to eight, April 3rd, um, you'll see a picture of a, a not so clean workbench that's mine and uh, the reason i pictured it is that uh, working with surface mount technology which i do well <laughs> in my bimodal uh, uh, operating habits probably half time but nonetheless um, i do a lot of it and you don't need to be fancy you don't have to have the um, 
the most expensive surface mount heating pad soldering stations in and somebody was asking whether it was paul or somebody else was asking about uh, soic book and guidance i wrote a um, several years ago now but i wrote a section that's still in the arrl handbook uh, called surface mount construction techniques and i i've uh, i've reproduced it in in uh, the pages here the whiteboard pages and as I use, I think it's an earlier version of the uh, the DDS-30 card. But nonetheless, soldering these things is not that difficult. Give it a try. You don't need much in a, in a way. All you need is a fine tip soldering iron. And if you're looking for a nifty-difty be-all, end-all type of soldering station, check out that. Uh, you can see it in the photo on the shelf above all of the mass. Just by the lamp, it's a, it's a black box. And it's the Xtronic. I think I picture it later. There it is. A picture of down on the whiteboard called the Xtronic 4000 series. It's a gem. It really, really is a gem. Not only does it have a fine tip soldering, uh, temperature controlled, adjustable uh, heat uh, uh, soldering iron on the right, but it's got a similar hot air gun, hot air uh, uh, attachment that you can adjust the temperature on. And with the right little attachment on the end of that to focus the air, you can take, golly, you can take... Uh, I don't know what you can take off, but you can take off some small ICs without affecting much else in another board. It's really neat. And then there's a there's a Doofus SMT hold-down device. That's about the highest technology that you're going to maybe need or want. I think that was made by Dave. Is Dave with us tonight? Uh, no, Dave, WA2DCN. Dave Ottenberg is a good friend of the New Jersey QRP and, uh, and of mine and Joe's. And he's experimented with all kinds of these little SMT hold-down devices. It holds down the little chip resistors and capacitors while you solder it. Really, really handy. Uh, what's the little black ball in the middle? Is that uh, some kind of weight? Yeah, I suspect it's uh, a little lead weight. But it's a weight that'll hold the toothpick down because that uh, you know it's at an angle of 45 degrees. The legs are on the left-hand side. And it applies a little bit of pressure to that chip it looks uh, it's a C1, a chip capacitor, so it doesn't move while I solder it into place. Is that a standard mouser part? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, it's uh, D-O-O-F-U-S-N-D. I guess that would make it a digital, or a uh, digi-key part. But uh, I guess mouser would be uh, 495-Doofus or something like that. Um, okay, we're running out of time. I do want to point you to the two sessions that uh, Alan, uh, W2AEW, did for us. Uh, he hosted two sessions that um, concerning oscilloscope basics, and the second one was oscilloscope applications. My goodness, you've got to, got to go through those things <clears throat> and listen to the podcast. Alan is an excellent instructor, um, uh, field uh, technician extraordinaire, and applications engineer, um, Ellen, it's uh, Tektronix, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Thank you for sharing all of that uh, material and your time with us here. Scopes, if you don't have a scope, you got to get one. First of all, you just got to get one. It, it provides infinitely more information about a circuit's operation than just a DVM. Um, and even if it's an inexpensive scope, you'll find ways to use it, and it will provide you good information. And and Alan's uh, overviews here in April 10th and April, let's see, I put them out of sequence, but April or June 19th, there's two sessions. Um, 
Alan really goes over the basics in the first one. How do you set your channels? Uh, how to set the sensitivity? What's the horizontal sweep or the vertical amplification? I learned something, and actually he he was using an example of uh, an oldie but goodie that I've got here on the bench, which is a, a Tektronix four four sixty five M. It's got an output, the vertical output on the back, and to this day I still have it coupled via coax over to a frequency meter. So whenever I'm probing um, with a with a scope probe on a circuit, uh, um, the signal uh, that has frequency. Um, I'm able to see what that frequency is on the on the uh, on the frequency counter that's connected to the back of the scope. Uh, really good tips and techniques for using and setting it. Now, in the applications section, you just gotta check out. There's a list, and I showed this on the June 19th session. Is a list of 21 YouTube presentations that, by definition, are less than 10 minutes each. Um, on how to, you know, basics of frequency measurement, a simple component curve tracer. Does somebody have a comment here? Yeah, uh, I have a question. This is Rich. Um, I I am looking for some information on basic test equipment that I can put in my Q, uh, CQ column. And I would like to know if I can go ahead and reference this, if Alan would have any objections, or you would have any objections, if I could reference this, either the white uh, board or these two podcasts so my readers could come by and take a look-see and actually get some useful information. Absolutely, no problem at all, and I think the same too with Alan, right, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you want to reference my uh, YouTube channel, there's uh, I've got, I think, 60 videos up there now, so there's a, this is about a third of what I've got up there, most of which are kind of geared towards test equipment. There's a few that aren't. But uh, you can you know, grab any any of those or just reference my channel, no problem at all. Okay, thanks, Alan. I appreciate that. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when I uh, when I get ready to do that uh, column, I'll be sure both of you guys know about it. And uh, so we have uh, we have conceptual acceptance that we can go ahead and do these things. So I can tell my editor that uh, it's been clear with you guys because he gets a little nervous sometimes. Go ahead. Okay, good enough, Rich. No problem at all. Glad to contribute and. And actually, uh, Joe N2CX has a, a passion for Who? Test, yeah, for for test equipment, and you'll see this thread in an awful lot of his uh, publications and columns in the QRP um, in the QRP world. And we've been uh, actually providing a number of, of um, incremental ways of getting there, such as with the the, the SIC low level RF probe such as with the signal quality meter that we haven't really talked about yet um, tonight. Um, but maybe in the future, uh, Rich, you and Ellen and Joe and I can collaborate and have a good session, a good uh, chat with the designers session concerning test equipment very specifically and, and come up with a novel, interesting approach for presenting kind of like a, a minimal set that would be useful in a, in a workshop and things like that. So let's keep that in mind. I want to move along because we're just we are out of time. I'm, I'll just highlight and point out a couple of uh, remaining good sessions that we had during this uh, the first half of the year. If you want to put up a vertical antenna, we've got a session on that. It might sound pretty simple, you know, you pound a stake into the ground, you attach your vertical, and boom, you're off to the races. Well, that's what I did as a novice, and probably pretty typical even to today uh, with with many hams. But if you want something that's going to stay up. You want to do it well from a grounding standpoint. You want to do it uh, from a utility standpoint. For example, being able to drop it over. Joe and I helped put up a uh, 
and then a vertical, a new vertical antenna, uh, a butternut, for a very, very good friend of ours, Nancy, N-A-J-M. And um, the, the session for April 17 kind of chronicles that. A particular, uh, a particular uh, uh, benefit to that session, I think, is the grounding system that we used from DX Engineering, a grounding plate that provided extensive ground radials. And the tip over, which is uh, um, a trademark, not patented, but a trademark of, of my own particular uh, number of antennas that I've done. So the tip over nature of it was is quite useful. Then we come into April 24th, which is the mag loop design, magnetic loop, or oftentimes called the STM, the signal. Um, uh, oh shucks, STM. Somebody help. Small transmitting loop, STL, sorry, I threw you off. STL, small transmitting loop. So, um, Jim, are you still here with us? Uh, W4CXU, you had a question you said about the mag loop. Yeah, I just wondered uh, if anybody had uh, tried, instead of the uh, kind of the, the tuning capacitor the way you have it, uh, uh, you know, uh, terminated at one end and, and spread it apart like a goose bill, I believe you said. <laughs> uh, if anyone has tried um, keeping those horizontal with a piece of glass between them, moving one side of the loop, would that uh, detune the loop badly if you, uh, if you uh, flex one uh, side of the loop in a horizontal fashion to uh, change the amount of overlapping uh, of the two... Uh, uh, to the arms of the loop. Okay, it was a little hard to hear you, but if I think the essence of your question was a loop, an STL like this needs to have a capacitor that kind of connects the two ends. And that's what we've shown uh, in, a, in, in the, what I call the midnight loop design that we show or picture featured, as well as in the design schematic and so on. And we have two flaps that... Uh, Take the ends of the of the loop, and you can draw them closer or farther apart by a stepper motor, which will provide increasing or decreasing capacitance to, in order to tune the loop. Now, I think what you're asking is, can you just take the ends of the loop and, in some mechanical way, push them closer or farther apart, such that uh, the loops themselves are overlapping or more or less? Is that what you're asking? No, I was thinking more of uh, having one uh, arm of the loop uh, overlapping the other one horizontally so that uh, as you slide them uh, apart or together uh, your capacity would change and you would keep the high voltage uh, dielectric uh, between the two yeah that uh, I think I think that's what I was sort of trying to say the the bottom line of what you're describing indeed is the way to do it but there are some problems with physics when you when it comes time to do this number one, is you got to have enough surface area that's going to present you with the right kind of capacitance that will be enough to tune at 14 megahertz, for example, at a, for a certain inductance that you have in a loop. You might have 2.5 microhenries in a loop, and that means you're going to have to have um, about 50 p uh, puff or picofarads of capacitance in order to tune that thing. Oh gosh, I don't know where it's going to tune with those, but that's typical values. Bottom line is that uh, you got to have enough surface area to create that capacitor, point number one. Point number two, when it comes time to moving those those ends of the of the loop together or, or farther apart in order to change the capacitance, 
you're going to have to automate that in some fashion. You cannot, at least while transmitting, it's not a good practice to touch these loops. They have like kilovolts on them, especially right there at the capacitor. So it, uh, you might be able to use your cat. My wife wouldn't let me do that as much as I tried, but uh, you have to find a stepper motor or some type of an automated mechanism that will allow you to remote control the motion. Um, there's a number of designs that are around. If you do, a, again, the, the series of references that we provide at the end of that whiteboard for that specific day of uh, session of April 24, there's a boatload of really good references that uh, um, address the different forms of capacitors. There's trombone capacitors. Um, any kind of sliding tube inside one another can provide you the same uh, enough surface area to affect the right kind of capacitance that will give you tuning range. Uh, two plates close together or far apart, like Joe and I did. Um, uh, actual butterfly capacitors, although lossy, you can weld the individual plates to reduce the resistance, which of course, if you look at the equation, the lower that you make the the DC resistance of, of the loop, um, the more efficient it's going to be. Although we've, with a, even with a loop antenna, any kind of a compromised antenna, efficiency is out the door to begin with. We're talking about very low efficiencies. Um, and our our slides that we present um, in the PDF file for that for that session kind of illustrate that. But yep, that's that's there's a number of ways of adjusting the capacitors there, Jim. I'd be glad to talk about it afterwards with you if you have some ideas that you'd like to explore. Great, appreciate it. I'd like to do that. Okay, kind of sliding down. Um, there's a session on May 1st called Harmonics and Spurs and Parasitics. Oh my. We were addressing this a little bit earlier uh, this evening and uh, in the area of low-pass filters. In other words, if you don't have a low-pass filter, you're going to have a ton of spurs and harmonics that you got to reduce. You cannot have other signals uh, other than your, uh, your fundamental frequency, let's say 7 megahertz. Um, the harmonics would be like at 14 megahertz, um, 21 megahertz, and you want to reduce those such that they are, I think the, the FCC spec is like 40 or 48 dB down from the fundamental in order to be legal from a transmission standpoint. The way to do that, of course, is with the low-pass filters we talked about. A way to see this information is, or, you know, the spurs and extra energy that your transmitters make is by means of a spectrum analyzer. But not everybody has a spectrum analyzer. So Joe and I whipped up this circuit for Atlanticon a while back called the SQM, the Signal Quality Meter. It's pictured there on that uh, portion of the web page of the whiteboard. And again, in full detail, explanative uh, detail on May 1st session. And a little device that allows you that <clears throat> essentially um, um, provides a, a graphical way of how much energy is at a given frequency. So if you're sliding along the, if you're adjusting the capacitor, the polyvaricon capacitor up, you will affect the tune frequency of the information that, uh, of the signal that's getting to the measurement device, the log amp. And uh, the more energy that comes in at the higher frequencies, the more signal gets displayed. The idea is that you want to have low signal displayed far above your fundamental. So it's a very, very poor man's uh, spectrum analyzer. That, uh, that we worked on. Kind of wrapping it up, we, we talked about remote antenna tuning with Rookie. You can look at that if you're interested. The Rookie is another kit. 
that's on the on the bench here, on the shelf. And I do actually I do have these available. Um, so if you wanted to do some remote controlling with some tones and such, Joe and I are working on a on a project using a rookie to um, um, to tune the. It's an antenna switch. It's a remote controlled antenna switch. If you look in the section that is labeled uh, Feedline Frenzy of May 29, I actually provided some shortened tables that should be of particular value of an interest as far as the favorite kinds of coax cables we use and the uh, loss, typical loss per runs of 100 foot. But also at the bottom of that, uh, uh, that little segment there, I showed the project for the remote controlled antenna switch using the Rookie and using some basic techniques uh, called a a diplexer or a triplexer that allows us to put power out to the antenna to control stuff and the controlling this thing to controlling this stuff or the relays is that little rookie PCB so you can check that out if you're uh, interested. They come into the end here and we'll wrap it up real shortly. Uh, June, uh, June 5th is the retro SWR again there is uh, pictured on the right is the um, Right there, Rich. I had this. Uh, I had the matching, the matching SWR box for the novice station, uh, for the Heathkid novice station, and and it's uh, it's right there, and it uses it a typical uses circuit. Typical. For rub, uh, rub, rub it in. Go ahead. Just, just you. You took my station, man. <laughs> but I'll get it working, and I'll use it. It works. So. Um, the typical circuit there, a couple of diode detectors, and you flip a meter between forward and reflected, and you get the you see what the SWR and reflected, uh, the forward and reverse is. Um, so Joe and I took that circuit, we modernized it, and came up with a very simple implementation of uh, getting some diodes and flipping a switch back and forth. And what you see pictured there, actually, I have those parts I received from China this last week. And I finally came in the slow boat, finally came in those that meter. Is and that's not the meter. Um, do I have the actual meter? Oh, shucks. On the original page, you'll see a picture of a really nifty meter. I got them for like uh, three bucks a piece. So I have a bunch of those. And of course, I've got the copper clad. I've got the BNCs, the switches, and all that sort of stuff. So all I have to do is get these parts together, and then you too can freeform build. If you take a picture, you know, look at the photo of the the resistor soldered to the copper clad and hanging out in midair at. Uh, Somebody gave, uh, someone called that, Alan, you called, there was a name that you did, free wire, uh, free wiring, free space wiring or something? Uh, I called it uh, sky wiring. Sky wiring. I love it. I had not heard that term, but it's certainly reminiscent of the Heathkit days and early days of W7ZOI's ugly construction. The last, uh, there's a power supply that we, that we built up, uh, kind of a simple, standard, linear power supply. I wanted a linear I don't, I don't like the, the stinking digital uh, hash or the opportunity that a, for noise that a, uh, that a switching power supply would give. And I'm, I build up a DC power supply for the SDR cube line. And uh, that's it, by the way. You can see it pictured there um, in, in that little segment for June 12th. I didn't get a good shot of it, but you see that's the left-hand box there with a little blue light on it. It's called the DC power cube. So that big hunker of a transformer, and I have a bunch of those now. So in uh, the transistors and terminal block and all that retro stuff. If you wanted to, if you wanted to build up that project, we'll have a 
we have a kit supply or a kit being prepared for that too. You too can get a 10 amp linear power supply that's clean as a whistle, and it'll heat your shack in the night in the in the winter nights too. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've discovered that switching power supplies don't have to be noisy. I got a Toshiba laptop, and I lost the power supply for it. So I ordered one of the cheap power supplies off of eBay uh, and then found uh, the original power supply. And I noticed that the Japanese or the, the uh, Chinese uh, version uh, put out a huge amount of RF noise, whereas the Toshiba OEM part is perfectly quiet. There you That's go. That's interesting. Yeah, that is indeed very interesting. And um, there's, there's certainly... You know, a lot to be said for well-designed switchers. I wasn't about to homebrew a well-designed switcher. Um, and I, I just want to be sure, and I like linear. I just like linear, and and it's easy to build. So um, I can deal with uh, the heavy transformer and the heat that's generated. And it was a fun experience of, of putting it all together. And I'll just reiterate, take just two seconds, but I'll reiterate the story that I did on the podcast for that, uh, that session with the power supplies. I... Uh, I was debugging a certain software version of the SDR cube here on the bench, and I was using a, a digital switcher. Um, actually, no, 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 I was not. I, I was using a linear supply, but there's a switcher um, on, on the uh, SDR cube, if you know the design, a little switching regulator, three-terminal jobby. But anyways, um, there, was a, there was a big hash at, at regular frequency intervals on the receiver. On the receiver, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out what was coming. I thought it was the onboard switcher. I replaced it with a an LM 7805 with a big old heat sink. And uh, son of a gun, the, the noise was still there at regular intervals. Big hash. Really bad news. It was like every 60 kilohertz or so. So I figured, aha, there's a switcher somewhere in here. So long story short, I had to turn off individually everything here in the shack. Uh, in order to find out what power supply was leaky, you know, from an RF standpoint. And it was the uh, power, it was the switcher for my LCD monitor on the computer, tucked away in a corner, far away, sort of far away from, from the radio, but that was causing a problem. It was at that moment that I said, never again, I shall never use a digital switcher on a radio unless I actually buy it from you know, Astron or some, some acknowledged good, uh, good design. Oh, well. The last, last session... Go ahead. Yeah, George, it's Terry. I just... Uh, the schematic on that 10-amp uh, power supply, maybe it's just a little nit, but uh, is that really AC input? Um, or is that the output of the diode bridge or diode rectifier? Yeah, it's the latter. It's, it's obviously the, uh, the DC input from the bridge. Um, the, schematic, just... the schematic that I gra grabbed from someplace for it was obviously inaccurate, but uh, nonetheless... Yeah, that's rich. Uh, where do you get the bill of materials for that power supply? Well, um, I, I don't know if I have it on the original whiteboard, but if not, it should be there. I, I have it, and I can get it to you. Okay, great, because I need to do that. I've got two dead Astron supplies here, and I was going to refurbish them because they've got some really strange problems. Already? Nothing worse than strange problems, for sure. I know that story a lot. And actually, I'll post the uh, the parts list and such on, a, on the full kit page that, that's that's devoted for that one. 
The last session that we're going to talk about tonight is actually last week's, or the last session before our our summer break. It was uh, um, GPS communications or GPS uh, GPS applied to QRP and radio communications in general. Joe Jessen, uh, KC2VGL. Joe's here. How about that? Hey, Joe. Good to have you with us here tonight. Uh, Joe. Uh, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, Joe gave us a, an outstanding, outstanding presentation. Uh, it turns out to be, what, three weeks ago now on uh, GPS and great overview. And I'll tell you, if you have not listened to a podcast, listen to that one. You'll really get a lot smarter in the topic as, as I did in going through it. Now, the very cool part about this, and somebody asked about this offline, and I really, uh, I wasn't sure that he was seriously asking and He just didn't get it. He didn't get, you know, how is GPS applied to ham radio? And throughout the, the presentation, the podcast for that night, we really underscored the main main thing for GPS is supplying timing information to radio communications, accurate timing and pulse timing that uh, is used to synchronize very slow speed communications and hence low power capable communications such as JT65A, Whisper, uh, QRSS, all of these communications modes, which <clears throat> by the way are soon coming to the SDR cube, are synchronized by means of GPS or, or other or other techniques. GPS is just very common and, and increasingly capable. So you got a little module that's in there that provides a one pulse per second uh, reference signal that synchronizes the software that tells your computer when to transmit and when to listen for slow speed CW communications or for audio types of uh, audio modulation such as JT65. And when you do the synchronization, the key to low, one of the keys to low bandwidth, um, I'm sorry, one of the keys to low power, extremely low power communications is narrowing the bandwidth such that you're only listening in the very exact spot that's being transmitted. And you're listening to the very smallest bandwidth and you get rid of all of that extraneous energy around it. You think of Shannon's theorem and all sorts of other types of, uh, uh, communications theory, it says that you should be able to um, receive signals that are um, with a higher degree of accuracy, um, signals that you'd be able to receive that are way down in the dirt. Uh, you can improve the signal-to-noise ratio of the signals being received. And on the other side of the coin, of course, you can transmit with lower power into that smaller, that same known bandwidth. The point is, you have to know when to listen and when to, trans when to transmit and when to listen to that transmit. And the way that you do that, one of the ways, is with GPS communications. Now, here's, here's the real, the, the beauty. Joe, uh, KC2VGL, is uh, being an expert in the area and also involved with a company that uh, deals in this on a regular basis, has, uh, has, a, has some contacts into the U-Blocks, um, is the name of the manufacturer, Joe, and they, these uh, were able to get some uh, cost breaks, uh, price breaks on some of these little modules that provide a, a self, totally self-contained one pulse per second uh, GPS module. And also for a little bit more than a little, but nonetheless, a reasonably priced module that will provide a 10, mega, a 10 megahertz reference signal that is extremely stable, that can serve as a reference, a signal reference for your station. 
So we here on Chat with the Designers will be able to kind of experiment with these things at a at a price break, and then together, Joe uh, Joe Everhart, uh, N2CX, uh, Joe Jessen, and myself, we're putting together some experimenter circuits based around these U-Blocks modules. I'm looking at one of them right now. It's about one inch by one inch by by I don't know a quarter uh, an eighth of an inch. A small module that fits on a circuit board with just a bunch of caps and resistors, and you apply power. You apply your GPS antenna, and bingo, you've got your precise signal reference that gets fed over to the radios. Very cool stuff. Joe, can you add any more to that? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it, too, because it's what you end up with um, on the one module. You end up with, without any other parts or anything, you end up with a 10 megahertz um, GPS um, synced source. GPS discipline source. So you got a really stable um, frequency reference, um, 10 to the minus 11th. And I think if you uh, if you run it over a period of time, it's 10 to the minus 12th um, accuracy. So pretty amazing uh, reference for, you know, well under 100 bucks. George, how long do you think you, uh, GPS has been in existence? Oh, I'm guessing now uh, non-military usage, I uh, maybe 20 years? Well, military usage is better than 30 years. And uh, real quick story, I, in 1981, my grandmother died, and I got an emergency leave to leave England and fly back to the States to Spokane and then, you know, car down to Palouse, Washington. And uh, the uh, crew chief of the C-141 I was flying on, uh, looked in my, you know, I saw my briefcase and saw a, an ARRL handbook in there and came up to me and said, uh, you know, Ham, and we exchanged pleasantries. He'd just gotten his license, and he said, tell you what, when these people go to sleep, I'm going to drag you up on the on the flight deck and let you meet the front end crew. So we did, and uh, these guys had been away from home for about six weeks. They were an air guard unit out of Spokane. And uh, I, I sat down and said, here, you want to you run some phone patch traffic for us so we can talk to our wives? I said, certainly. I would do that. And I sat down. I said, exactly where are we at? And the, the co-pilot pointed up to the, <laughs> the control panel, the dashboard, and he said, we're right there. And here, right up in front in big digits on, on that uh, thing, right above the throttles, were uh, the coordinates. And they were changing by the second as we moved. I said, wow, how do you do that? He said, satellites. Magic. Absolute magic. Yeah, I know what you mean. And yeah, I, I believe that military usage was was, was present beforehand too. So uh, yep, it's been with us for a while. And right now, I think we've got the technology to inexpensively uh, use some of the components that are being generated um, by the big manufacturers, such as what uh, JJ has been able to get his hands on. And we'll shortly have some uh, some of these modules available for this group. Uh, good friend Ken V uh, V uh, oh golly uh, VA three KMD is a, an aficionado for something called the uh, micro... Uh, Ken, what's the micro metal? Micro... M, what does a micro M stand for? Uh, it's a micro mega F, uh, floating, floating point processor unit. There you go. The micro mega. I just couldn't think of the mega part. So um, pictured there as a schematic with an LCD toward the bottom of the very bottom of the page, the whiteboard for tonight. You'll see... That uh, it's a little chip. It's it's an S. You can get it in dip form, or you can get it in SOIC. It's just one chip. You apply power, and it takes the GPS receiver's 
output, which is an, uh, um, a string of ASCII data digitally sent out that TX port, and you put it into you know you put it into this little chip. I mean, you can wire it like in 30 minutes. You can get this thing, and then you take a standard serial LCD. You go to C Ctron or I forgot. You can get a serial LCD, and uh, for those three little parts there, you can, 30 minutes, you can wire it up. And then what it does for you, of course, is display, as shown there, the core or the raw information coming from a GPS receiver, whether it's a handheld unit um, for tracking of um, several years ago or some of the modern stuff today that we see built into the iPad or, as we said, in the little U-Blocks chips modules that we're going to be getting from, J from JJ. These things provide... Uh, a stream of data called NEMA, or NMEA, N-M-E-A, and there's an example of the, the data output um, pictured on this web, on our whiteboard. But it describes uh, how the data coming out of it uh, displays the current date, the current time, the latitude, longitude, elevation, all sorts of other information. And then the, uh, that FPU, that Micromega FPU chip decodes that and displays it outright to the uh, to the serial LCD. So if you wanted to wire together a little simple circuit, once you get your hands on either this U-Blocks chip or something that's available a lot today, it's called the Jupiter board. I have those pictured there on the whiteboard too. The Jupiter board is also used a very, uh, I have um, the G3RUH GPS disciplined oscillator. I built that thing up um, along with Mark Phillips, uh, G7LTT of the NJQRP fame. He's just not been able to attend uh, recently, but he was really into this and it helped guide me through getting one of these things operational. Not quite as accurate um, as the uh, the U-Blocks modules that Joe's going to get for us, but nonetheless, these disciplined oscillators output the serial stream of ASCII data that represents that information about uh, uh, from the gained from the satellites uh, pinpointing your location. Whew. Okay. We're at the bottom of the uh, the bottom of the page. We covered an awful lot of material here. Um, if you had to drop out, I understand it. We went well over an hour, but I was having fun, and I hope you did too. So we'll kind of open it up here and just kind of hang on as long as you want to talk. And if there's any questions or comments, you want to go back and talk about one project or another, please, by all means, speak up. Armand, go ahead. Yes, good evening, uh, George and everybody. Now, this is just a little bit of feedback uh, for you. The ones that, uh, the episodes that really uh, tickled me were Alan's uh, two scope uh, tutorial ones. The, the filter design one was especially good, those those three uh, uh, episodes. Uh, the vertical installation also, because I have the DX Engineering base plate sitting at my feet right now, and uh, the, the butternut will be here in a few months, I hope. Um, one other uh, comment was the very first thing I've ever homebrewed was that 88 millihenry uh, CW filter, and I wish I still had it, but I gave it away. And uh, well, you mentioned being a bimodal, and uh, boy, does that ring true. Right now, the thing that is shot to the top of my to-do list or my want-to-do project list is that silly ultimate regen by Bruce Vaughn, so <laughs> I have you to blame for that. Thanks a lot. Oh, Armand, you're a man after my own heart, if there can be such a thing. I'll tell you, it is... Uh, that ultimate regen by uh, by Bruce Vaughn, I, I could show you pictures, and I, maybe I will in the future. Maybe I'll have a little session or an episode that that focuses on it. I have two beautiful wooden cabinets that I've been making along with a fellow ham 
here in the New Jersey QRP area, um, John KE3S, Kilo Echo 3 Sierra, and he is a master craftsman in every regard. So John's been kind of sharing his knowledge and expertise. We, uh, we have a power supply box and a wooden case for the, uh, for the actual regen part. All the parts are collected, some beautiful PW dials that are going to be used uh, uh, to control it. I'm, I'm so psyched about that. But I'm really glad that you found that of interest, and probably also you liked that uh, book that I recommended uh, four or five sessions ago uh, concerning uh, Bruce Vaughn's uh, uh, detailing books of uh, time gone by. I forgot the name of it. Uh, surviving Technology. Ah, oh, Surviving Technology. Rich, you probably have uh, heard about that book. Actually, no, this is the first time. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll point out um, later on. I'll point out what episode, or somebody else can put it on here. But it is a. Uh, um, I gave a book review and a photograph of the picture. You can get, or a photograph of the book. You can get the uh, the book from Electric Radio for like twenty four bucks, and it's just really, really a good collection of um, old, uh, home brewing techniques for boat anchors. And specifically focusing on um, the design and construction of uh, Regen Radio that is that Bruce Vaughn is the acknowledged godfather of. And it's, it's really good. Um, other comments here tonight? Yeah, I would like to ask you one more time. One other question, uh, if you would, George. Uh, uh, would, uh, would pulling two arms of the uh, loop antenna together to overlap them uh, in the same plane as the, as the circle, would that detune the, the the loop significantly? Well, the idea is that you want to tune the loop. When you tune a loop, you, you're you're dealing with a combination of the inductance and the capacitance. So uh, maybe what you're asking is the inductance of the loop changing when you overlap the parts. Um, I don't know. Maybe not significantly enough. But whatever capacitance that you achieve from the overlapping ends will probably interact in a constructive way to actually tune it to the frequency that you want, as long as you're within the ballpark, you know, uh, of, of measurement uh, uh, range. So um, the whole thing is a matter of getting the right L and C um, for the frequency that you're interested in, and that's a direct calculation. And then, of course... The L is very specifically physic, the, the physics of of uh, determining the, the inductance is a matter of physics with uh, the circumference of your of your loop, and uh, and uh, the capacitance is a matter of the capacitance equation relative to field energy and so on. So it's a balance of everything along the way. I would suggest if you're interested in something like that, do some experiments. Put yourself together, get yourself a copper loop of, uh, I don't know, maybe four, three or four feet in diameter. That should be sufficient for 14 megahertz operation, 20 meters. And uh, measure the inductance. Get your AADE um, inductance meter out there and, and measure the inductance. You'll have somewhere probably around two microhenries. Um, put a capacitor there. Um, you know, get a, get a 365 puff capacitor. The wider the spacing, the better. For voltage uh, voltages that are going to be handled, but find out where that where you can resonate that loop, frequency-wise, 
and then measure the capacitance. And you'll get a feel for the, you know, the capacitance and hence the amount of overlap that you would need to achieve that capacitance in a different fashion. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, but uh, in the session that I've listened to about three times where you were talking about magnetic loops, you talked about uh, uh, using uh, copper flashing. Uh, I think you said either 8 or 10 inches wide, but I calculated if you overlap two ends uh, so that you had uh, 100 square inches, you're talking about 1,000, as I remember at least, 1,000 picofarads, which is way more than you need. So if you could slide those two overlapping ends back and forth with a dielectric between them, uh, you could uh, change your capacity there. So the question was, you know, would sliding them uh, an inch or two back and forth uh, change the uh, the circle of your uh, loop enough to uh, detune it? it, it um, I, I think in a simple answer is no. You'll be able to come to a balance of um, of the inductance and the capacitance that will give you a resonance where you're looking to get it. And you might detune, as you say, or you might change the inductance of the by shortening or by making the circle smaller. Um, but I think you, you would compensate for that by the capacitance that would be achievable. Now, capacitance, of course, is very much affected. The capacitance between two plates is very much affected by the spacing between those two plates. So you look at the equation and it, and it should be evident. So the, the flashing that we used um, was ballpark. I don't have the calculations in front of me, but we calculated the capacitance that was achieved and it was not uh, um, the, the the spacing was not parallel was not controlling the parallel spacing of the of the uh, capacitive plates, but it, think of it as a jaw opening and closing, um, and so therefore it wasn't as much calculable as it was empirically derived capacitance, and it worked. And I guess that's what I can just say. Yeah, well, you guys, that was very innovative. I hadn't thought of flashing, and that's a great idea. Uh, and then I saw a picture on this whiteboard tonight, which really explained what I was going to ask you about anyway. So you guys are doing a great job. I appreciate it, and I am going to uh, do some experimenting with that. I had just built a receiving uh, loop. Uh, I calculated everything for that. It's working great on uh, 20 meters. So... Uh, I'll do exactly what you suggest there. Thanks a million. Enjoy talking with you, George. Good evening. Oh, thanks a lot, Jim. I really appreciate your questions, and, and I'm glad to help you out a little bit. And, and again, in a nutshell, if you look at the equations for STLs, or trans small transmitting loops, um, or magnetic loops, uh, the equations are heavily geared around surface area of, um, uh, for the loop itself. And the more surface area, um, the more efficient it's going to be. And that's what drove Joe and I to select 10-inch flashing for the entire loop itself, as opposed to using, for example, a, a half-inch or a three-quarter-inch copper pipe, which is kind of typical. We wanted to maximize one of the parameters of the equations that would hopefully and theoretically give us the, uh, a better performance or more efficient design. And we proved that it did work. The downside, as we also demonstrated and, and showed, was that the instability of holding 10-inch, thin 10-inch uh, copper or uh, aluminum flashing was such that the slightest breeze would detune the antenna and we were unable to keep a very steady frequency um, 
uh, in tune. And that's one of the challenges that could be kind of uh, worked on downstream by somebody who wanted to take that the next step further. JJ, you had a question. Uh, actually, I just had a comment. I just wanted to thank you and Joe E for all the hard work that you've done as we reminisce on all the um, sessions we've had. And also, uh, you know, everybody's still on the line. I still, uh, it's just amazing how much work that you and Joe E put into this every week. It, as any good um, science, it looks, it looks transparent, but there's a lot of work that goes into each session. And I, I just want to thank you guys again. Well, thanks, Joe. We're much appreciated. I'm sure Joe does as well. He'll be listening to the podcast. And, uh, you know, it's as I said before, it's we're doing what we enjoy doing. And I think those of you who are here and listen to the podcast um, are of the same ilk as us. And we just enjoy talking about the technology and different applications of it and different homebrewing of it and exploring different dimensions. And it's your interest that drives us to do this just as much as our own. So thank you for attending and everybody here, too. I have to say, this is my first uh, meeting with you guys, and I, it took me three computers to get TeamSpeak up and running. One computer, I dumped the entire audio recording system somewhere in the computer. It's no longer visible, so I've got to figure that out. I am computer and internet challenged, so, you know, it's one of those things. But I have to say something, George. This is an absolute gold mine of information. And I am going to refer to this on more than one occasion in my column simply because people need this kind of information. And I'm sitting here right now on the digital modes portion of the podcast, which I'm going to listen to here in a few minutes after we all leave. And um, there's so many ideas here, and there's so much information and so much work that has been done, I, again, by you and Joe, uh, you know, you know. Of course, he's a he's a, an engineer only because he knows how to uh, identify a train two out of three times. But uh, he's he's not a bad guy, and I'm glad you got him under control. But you two guys, seriously, you two guys really do a great job, and I have to echo uh, the previous uh, person's comments. And I really enjoy this, and I'm going to be a regular attendee. And I know people are probably cringing about that. Go ahead. Well, I'll tell you, Rich. First of all, thanks. And I'll tell you though. Um, it, we're having help of our friends, a growing amount of help from our friends that are that are uh, regular listeners or soon to be regular lins- listeners. Of course, two sessions were fully hosted by Alan W2AEW with his oscilloscope applications and basics, and uh, another one was by JJ, um, who was just speaking about the uh, the GPS stuff. Uh, absolutely amazing expertise that we're tapping into. Um, Although he works on these nights, uh, Bruce, uh, N1, um, blah, 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 you know Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, uh, Befford, I can't remember his call sign. He has helped us in a couple of sessions. Um, so we're, we're really kind of getting help in an increasing way. And I think this is just a, it's sort of like uh, like the bees and the, and the flowers. The more po- cross-pollination that we get, the more ideas, as you said, the more... Um, uh, techniques that we develop and the, the better, you know, the better, the more that we enjoy our hobby and, and the process. It's cool stuff. And Very good Rich, analogy. Rich, I'm going to, I'm going to depend on you and maybe in the coming, we'll figure out a, a really good topic. Then we can, you and I can, uh, and, and Joe can kind of host something together. Terry, go ahead. Hey, Terry, go ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to say, George, thank you so much. I'll, I'll echo everybody, what everybody's saying. I don't think people understand how much prep work you put into these sessions. I mean, 
how many of the, the pictures and the diagrams and everything that you put together is just amazing. Not only the prep work, but like you said, the post work of editing uh, stuff down to a cohesive, um, more cohesive um, um, uh, podcast. You guys are doing a fantastic job. I mean, it, this is this is just great. So congratulations. Thanks, guys. It's this interest that keeps us going. And also the uh, the couple of week vacation that we had uh, uh, away from the show was quite invigorating. So we've got a bunch of good, mo- a bunch of other new ideas that we want to present. And some things that frankly are going to be groundbreaking. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here, but we've got some really fun times ahead here with chat with the designers. And uh, you guys are going to be the first to know when it happens. Okay, thanks everybody for attending. Long session tonight. I'm going to break this into two pieces um, from an audio MP3 file standpoint. And uh, we'll process it in that fashion. But have a good night and really appreciate everybody's uh, attendance tonight. We'll see you next week, same time, same station, here on TeamSpeak uh, with Chat with the Designers. And, uh, this is George, N2APB, saying good night all. Thank you.